Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, that is great. That is uh, a song uh, for and by the Women's Land Army. It's a rewrite, of course, of a melody by George M. Cohan. Uh, and uh, you hear, you're hearing it performed by the Peterborough Farmerettes. I assume that's Peterborough, New Hampshire. The Peterborough Farmerettes. Farmerettes is a term we probably wouldn't use today if we were starting uh, a similar enterprise, but uh, that was a term of art uh, at the time. We're about to talk about a remarkable program, which I think people don't know very much about. I certainly did not know very much about it when it was first proposed that we do this show. In fact, I will go so far as to say I knew nothing about it. And, and it's so odd because this is such an amazing story. And it does remind me, last year we did a story, uh, we did a show about the so-called the Rocket Girls. This is before the movie Hidden Figures came out, the so-called Rocket Girls. And they worked in the Jet Propulsion, Propulsion Laboratory uh, and were absolutely key to um, – uh, getting the space program going. We also discovered that there was uh, a women's version of the Mercury program that nobody knew about, women who are being tested and trained pretty much the same way as the male astronauts. We located one of them. And I found myself saying, remember, and thinking, remember, hidden figures had not come out yet. Why doesn't everybody know about this? I mean, why Why would this be a basically hidden story? I feel the same way about the Women's Land Army. And, and this is all the more remarkable because it's a story that spans the two world wars. Uh, we are today observing the 100th anniversary of the uh, U.S. entry into World War I. This is a story that, that encompasses both World War I and World War II. We know what happens when a major war breaks out. Hundreds of thousands of young men go marching off to battle. And some of those young men, maybe a lot of those young men, are farmers. They're involved in food production. So it's kind of like <laughs> I had never given any thought to how did food production keep going? How did, how did both America and Britain continue to grow enough food to feed uh, the domestic populace, to feed the army, and maybe even send some food overseas? Well, the answer in many cases was women. So uh, we're going to talk about that today. Let me tell you who's here. Uh, joining us by phone is Cecilia Gowdy-Wigand, Histor uh, History and Women's Studies faculty at Front Range Community College and Metropolitan State University of Denver. She is the author of Cultivating Victory, the Women's Land Army and the Victory Garden Movement. Uh, also in studio with us is Walter Woodward, Associate Professor of History at UConn and a Connecticut State Historian. He is just newly arrived here from uh, a ceremony 
Germany uh, observing this 100th anniversary that I just mentioned. And then in studio, we have two veterans of the Women's Land Army. We have Elaine Lowengard, a former participant. Uh, well, they're both former participants. Uh, both Elaine Lowengard and Alice Corcoran were participants in the Connecticut Women's Land Army during World War II. So, um, let's begin at the beginning. And Cecilia, I'm going to have you kind of kick things off. Um, I did a little bit of work to explain what the Women's Land Army is, but I'm sure you have more and better things to say. Explain how this came into existence in World War I. Well, thanks, and thanks for having me today. You know, for me, cultivation is really about more than the production of food. It's really tied close to identity. You know, many of our country's founding fathers and mothers, they were agriculturalists. And some of them, they actually believed that putting your hands in the soil actually shape a person's character. So, so, so my book is really about how women's agricultural labor, both on at farms and at home, it, it really not only helps their countries, but it helps them shape their own identity. And that's what we really see here in this Women's Land Army. And just to give you a little bit of background, that concept for a Women's Land Army, it began in the First World War. And, and it began in Great Britain when a lot of women's rights activists, they were just trying to find a way that they could be of service to their country. And they could also find a way to just to make a place for themselves in the world of paid labor. It was really a time globally when people were sharing ideas, social movements were. And, and so it was in some of these international forums that American women first learned about this women's land army. And, and as we know, uh, the U.S., it enters World War I in 1917. And, and very quickly thereafter, a couple of Bernard College professors, they decide that they're going to have this agricultural experiment and see if they can train some women to take over this, this farm labor that, that's so greatly needed. And things really progress from there quite quickly. Colleges all across the country start to develop some agricultural training programs for women. And it's really the foundation of a lot of agricultural training programs that we have today. Uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch, the daughter of the famous women's rights activist Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she was the figurehead of the national movement of the Women's Land Army in the First World War. Yeah, there's, the, there's, there's some way in which this movement, the Women's Land Army, is inseparable, at least at that point during World War I and its aftermath, from the suffrage movement, right? There's a sense in which, first of all, if we have the Women's Land Army, that kind of gives us a seat at the table uh, that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise. I'm speaking on behalf of the women of America. Um, and also, if we have a hand on the plow, um, there's a way in which our labors, our efforts will not be easily forgotten when there's further discussion of women having the right to vote. Does that seem like a reasonable statement? Absolutely. We see that these women who are fighting for their place and their space in labor, they're also fighting for the right to vote. And, you know, many of the same activists, and they, they find that asking for an opportunity to show their worth in labor is going to be the, the key, the driving factor to show that they also deserve the right to vote. So at the same time, for example, while Harriet Stanton Blatch is encouraging women to go out on to the farms and to be you know, educated farmers, she's also suggesting that they stand in front of the White House every day with their, their picket signs, and, and they try to remind the president that they deserve the right to vote as well. Uh, and President Wilson, he does support it. Uh, he does support the Women's Land Army, but uh, you know, the government really doesn't fund it, and so it has to incorporate on a state level. 
So, uh, Walt, um, we are observing today here in Connecticut uh, the entry of the U.S. Um, in, into World War I. Um, because it was a war of a kind, uh, of a breadth and of a proportion that the U.S. had never seen before, there was a certain amount of uncertainty about all kinds of things, including food. There were uh, sort of food riots in, in New York City where push carts were overturned because prices were escalating pretty rapidly. People didn't really know exactly whether the food supply was stable. Obviously, uh, uh, looking over to Europe, seeing what had happened to Belgium. Well, I'll, I'll let you pick up that story. Sure. Her Herbert Hoover, looking at Belgium, starts to wonder what's going to go on with food. Well, at the beginning of the war, America was neutral. The Germans invaded Belgium, which was also a neutral country. And their treatment of the populace after it was terrible. People were starving. Herbert Hoover was sent over as head of the Belgium Relief Commission, and he realized after a couple of weeks there that food was going to be an indispensable part of this war, not just because an army travels on its stomach, but because the way that the peace was going to be won was through supplying food. So it became imperative that people be mobilized to eat less meat, eat less wheat, you know, change their consumption patterns and also grow more at a time when it was likely that men would be leaving the field. So, uh, so he came back dedicated to the slogan, food can win the war. And even before the um, America entered the war, Connecticut, because of, because of the degree of uh, arms and munitions manufacturer that we were doing, Governor Marcus Holcomb, who he's now known as the war governor, saw that American entry to the war was inevitable. So while the country was electing Wilson on a slogan of he kept us out of the war, Holcomb was energizing the state to be prepared for war. And, and they did it a lot of ways. One of the things they mobilized the citizenry for war preparedness. So as soon as America entered the war, a woman named Corrine Robinson Alsop who turned out to be a niece of Theodore Roosevelt, his, her mother was his sister, headed up the, the contingent that became the Women's Land Army. And Connecticut claims to have put the first women into the field in support of agricultural production to support the war effort. Right. So let somebody else prove that they were the first in the field. We're going to claim that right now. Although I think uh, the largest group in World War One, I, I think California was just sort of gigantic with the WLA. But but Cecilia, it you know this was happening in Britain and it was happening in America, but it was happening in slightly different ways. And the story gets told with different levels of enthusiasm. But is part of it because? agriculture in the United States was understood differently. It was connected to slavery. Uh, it was connected to immigrants. Uh, it was connected to so-called lower classes. Um, was it a different kind of sell here in the United States to say to a group of, of, of families with young women, yeah, go work on the farms? Did that mean a different thing in Britain than it did in America? Absolutely. You know, we see in Great Britain during the time of the First World War, they're importing about 50% of their food supply. And so, you know, that importation alone, I think, drives that 
you know, factor that they're going to cast aside those ideas about gendered, you know, roles for women in labor. And by the time we get to the Second World War, they're importing 70% of their food. And so I would argue that that absolutely shapes that dynamic a little bit differently. Here in the United States, however, we see that it's primarily white, urban, middle-class women who participate and to join this Women's Land Army, women of color and women who had already been in the workforce, they're going to find war jobs in factories that are, that are better paying, and they really avoid farm labor. And we see that different states are going to adopt this in different types of strategies. Some are more accepting of women as farmers, and some are less accepting of women as farmers. For example, in the agricultural south, People still have these ideas, these connections, as you said, these thoughts of uh, slavery, you know, as something that agricultural labor connected to in some way. And so they tie that together with this concept that what a proper Southern woman should be like. And, and they think that there's just no place for a proper white woman in the field. Um, Elaine, this probably touches on your memories a little bit about uh, your time in the Women's Land Army during World War II. Your family owned a tobacco farm, and so they had very specific ideas about who works on tobacco farms. Tobacco farms obviously weren't key to food production, but there there were ideas, right, about oh. what was okay to do and what wasn't? Oh, and uh, for me at first, it was not my family's idea of what I should be doing. It was a new idea that I would go out and work in the fields. <laughs> and, of course, I never did. They would have never allowed me to work on tobacco. Mm. But um, I, w I was recruited through my school, which was Chafee's School in Windsor, where I went for high school. And, and Corinne Robinson-Alsop, otherwise known as Mrs. Joseph Alsop. Mrs. Alsop yeah. was a revered figure. And I had forgotten that she was... Um, a Roosevelt mm -hmm. uh, daughter, and uh, she was very well-known and highly respected and a very classy woman. So that kind of made it okay, I guess, that she recruited us to get out there in the field. Right. If you're going to recruit, uh, recruit with white gloves. Um, right. <laughs> and so, Alice, you were... 13 years old at the time that you were recruited? Yes, I was. I was at uh, junior high school when the information was uh, had come around to uh, participate. And if we wanted to sign up to go, we needed to have our parents sign papers, etc. And uh, we looked forward to it, though there weren't that many. There was just only one other girl and I think perhaps uh, a lot of parents were reluctant to have their young teenagers go away simply because they're just, I don't remember many camps unless you went to Alice Merritt as a Girl Scout or what, but uh, to go to a farm perhaps uh, caused people to have their doubts or families for their children. So but I'm sure glad I went. It was a wonderful experience. <laughs> yes. Both of our guests uh, who are veterans of the Land Army have great stories to tell. And later in the show, we're going to make sure that they tell them. Yeah, so Alice was at Talcott Junior High School. That's in the Elmwood section of West Hartford when she was recruited. And Walt, um, Eleanor Roosevelt came to Connecticut, right? I mean, part of this was it was by this time the land grant universities in America are somewhere probably around 25 30 years old right well, they, right yukon uh, was formed in the 1870s early 80s but its mission was 
to promote agriculture and provide a practical education to groups of people, to classes of people who had never had it. A lot of that was farm education. They did scientific agricultural research. And their mission was to translate that research out of the college to the public. In 1914, the Smith-Lever Act created the extension service, and, the, and women had begun uh, taking home economics to help translate this science of food consumption in the early 1900s. So it was a confluence of a federal mission to help people learn scientific food production and domestic use and uh, consumption with the war. So UConn became instrumental in helping promote the land army, in helping, uh, helping actually promote both recruitment and getting farmers to be part of it, uh, and also convincing people to plant war gardens and World War I victory gardens in the second. Well, now there, there was a, a lot that – well, so yes, yeah, so we had Eleanor Roosevelt showing up in the stores in 1943. Well, well the yeah. connection is yeah. that Alsa, who was the head of the land army in World War I, was asked to head it up in World War II. Mm -hmm. And in early 1943, she asked Eleanor Roosevelt to come to Storrs because Storrs was offering something new for Connecticut, a short course in dairy or poultry production for women. They had started their first course in January of 1943. Four groups of seven girls came in two-week courses. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt came in early March and she went out, made a speech to the students at stores. She visited the girls, talked with them about poultry production, dairy production. The girls showed her their new blisters, and it was all, you know, it was a wonderful both uh, uh, recruitment tool for the land army, but it also was great publicity for the school. All right, so uh, recruiting had to happen a lot of different ways. Uh, and uh, by the time of World War II, uh, it was possible to make... Um, sort of recruitment commercials almost. These were uh, essentially movie recruitments. So uh, let's hear, okay, you're going to have to do a little um, visualization here. This first one that we're going to play for you uh, is uh, involves cows talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, we cows are in a very serious predicament. There are not enough people to milk us, and the land army needs 30,000 volunteers this year. Isn't that true, Enid? I'll say. The girls don't have to look after us all the time. There are plenty of other interesting jobs to do. The life is healthy, and the food is good. But we need the most, don't we, Enid? Yes, we need the gentle female touch. Yes, I think we've established those are cows. So, C Cecilia, uh, there was a lot that went on, and, and we'll play. I mean, when I was looking at these recruitment uh, uh, movies, these little mini movies today, I was kind of amazed, but not amazed, about how incredibly sexist a lot of them were. <laughs> but, they, but they weren't just sexist. They were sexy, too. One of the—you know, America and Britain had 
pretty one-track ideas about what femininity amounted to at this moment. So uh, it seems as though a lot had to go into the idea of saying to women who, who at least presumably hadn't done this kind of hard labor um, that they'd still be lovely, delicate flowers uh, even if they were picking potatoes. Absolutely. Uh, and and I, I absolutely love these advertisements as well. And, and thinking about that, that recruitment, just to, to kind of tie to that piece we just talked about, I found it amazing that even the recruitment manual for the Women's Land Army, it suggested that characteristics like women's gentleness and their high standards for cleanliness that made them naturally suited for work in, in dairy or, or something like that. Uh, and they just emphasized things that they thought, uh, you know, the, the, the female traits of gentleness would, you know, suit them for. But in terms of, of advertisement, we see this everywhere, you know, in the, the actual offices where they might recruit people. There, There's the images of the baby calves, and there's this great story of one recruit who was looking at one of these posters, and, and you know, one of the, the leaders came up to her, and she said, you realize it's not going to be all sunshine and, and baby cows. But uh, they, she said, yes, I, I know it's going to be hard work, but she was willing to do it. But it seemed like everywhere we looked, there were you know, examples of women as food producers, but in really glamorous ways. Uh, there were cartoons in every magazine from the New Yorker to Punch to Ladies Home Journal. Uh, and, you know, Women's Land Army, uh, they even made the cover of many magazines. A click magazine is one that kind of comes to mind. There's an example of a woman on a tractor, and she's kind of leaning over in this suggestive pose that's kind of elongating her body, and she has this very glamorous makeup and hair, and she's really suggesting to the reader that this is a very glamorous job. Yeah, I saw one that uh, was made a little bit later uh, that posited a woman who joined the Women's Land Army. I think this was one of the British ones, joined the Women's Land Army, and then at the end of the war went back to her life as a model. Uh, and you see, her, you see her modeling these kind of tearaway outfits that resolve into swimsuits or something. Um, so, um, you know, I just I, I want to pause here and just say, Cecilia, that it, one thing, another thing that I did see, I saw a a recruitment film, kind of, or, or a morale slash recruitment film, made in 1941. It's a 10 minute thing. It's written by Eleanor Roosevelt and it's voiced by Catherine Hepburn, and it deals with every single thing that a woman could do to aid the war effort: working in factories, working in laboratories, doing this, doing that. And it doesn't mention the Women's Land Army. Yes. And and I, I feel like the fact that this thing is an unknown story now is a little bit linked to the fact that somehow or other it was also operating on a different track from everything else even back then. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for many people, and, and I go back to that concept of where in Great Britain they were the importers of food. They, they were just struggling. It was a dire need. But here we were exporters of food, and, and there was this abundance, this you know, climate of abundance. And because of that, there really wasn't as much of a need to cast aside those gendered ideas about women and labor. And so they really tried to promote those ideas. And, and so women uh, were often encouraged to do things that uh, were considered more along those traditional you know, spheres for them. And unfortunately, the Women's Land Army was not advertised as much. However, we see in 1943, there was a goal to recruit about 60,000 women to participate. And they found in that one year alone, about 600,000 women show up. So even though you know, it might not have been as advertised as much as other you know, opportunities for service, women were listening and, and women were finding this as an opportunity for them to get out of their, their homes, maybe get out of urban areas and, and experience labor in a way that, that maybe had been excluded to them before. 
Um, I want to ask uh, the veterans here. Alice, when you say that you were in the Women's Land Army, do people know what you're talking about? Not at all, and not many people are really interested. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say. Um, but that's but amazing. I, yeah, that's but an, I, it's ridiculous that they're not interested. Interested. This is a really it's an incredible story about. I mean, you were 13 years old and, and recruited for the war effort. And I have oftentimes, many times, had the privilege of being able somehow or other and just talking and sharing. Something comes up and I'll kind of, you know, it's a flashback to I was in the Women's Land Army or went off to bean camp or picked strawberries. And it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and and there were never any questions, but I just kind of yammered on and told about my story. And uh, the amazing thing is just coming up to today in light of having to share that with my dear cousin, Connie, who was the instigator of kind of um, my being here and just this program here, uh, start, you know, being produced today. Uh, she took an interest and she listened to me and I thought, gosh, here I'm well past, you know, the teen years and it's in my later years that uh, she was so interested to hear about the, you know, and ask questions. And of course, I I found that interesting just because certainly it was personally satisfying to remember the memories. But the more that I shared it, the more I was aware of what we really had done. And certainly it was different. I'm thrilled to hear this, Celia. I'm thrilled to hear all of you tell about something more of. I've heard of John Alsop and knew him through another friend. But um, I didn't know that their background any more than I knew of um, Elaine's background of having to have a family involved in tobacco. And there were the young boys that went off to tobacco, but not, uh, and there were girls that came from Pennsylvania to work yes. on the tobacco fields here, of which I also had the privilege of meeting the cook that we had <laughs> at Well Sweep Inn because Rosie Phillips came from Pittsburgh. And when it was Saturday and we had the day off to go into Manchester and we would hitchhike, and uh, that was something that was just kind of not too much a no-no, but it was something that was a little bit scary. Yeah, if you I, want, never... I want to save that hitchhiking story uh, for the next segment. Uh, I know about it because you told Betsy about it. I want to hang on to it for just okay. a second because that's, that's a good one. So, Elaine, what about you? Do people, are people familiar with this Women's Land Army story when you tell them about it? I haven't told anybody. I haven't <laughs> kept it a secret. I just hadn't thought about it until I was invited to come and participate today. And then I have begun, it, it has stimulated my memory. And uh, uh, it has given me an opportunity to think about, put my experience, which was just a very local, silly summer experience, <laughs> the way I would have thought about it. Except, I had no idea it was so important. Well, except that you do know at some level, because in contrast to the way that we live now, as you lived for, through World War II, you lived, I mean, you know, Americans didn't starve during World War II, but you lived with ration booklets. Oh, yes. You lived oh, with, yes. there were things you couldn't get, right? Oh, absolutely. And um, I was just recall that uh, pineapple was something you couldn't get, mm. because the only place that I think, that grew pineapples for American consumption uh, were in the Philippines. I don't 
know that we had pineapples in other parts of the world. And you couldn't, you knew immediately when the war broke out that you weren't going to have pineapple anymore. And somebody gave my father a case of pineapple early in World War II. And it was down in, the, in our storage room in the cellar. And guess what? At the end of the war, it was still there. The pineapple was too valuable to open up while the, <laughs> while the war was going on. Um, Cecilia, we're, um, as we close out this segment, I want to come back to this. And I don't mean to harp on it too much, but I do, like, just in the research that we did for this show, um, I noticed that, for example, in 2009, the BBC did uh, essentially a costume drama called Land Girls, you know, the story of four young women who joined the British Land Army, and that the series Foils War had an episode that, that dealt with the women's Land Army. And there just isn't the opposite of that here. There isn't much American storytelling uh, about this, even at that level. And does that, I, I, you suggested this before, but maybe it's worth emphasizing, Britain's food supply often did come in large amounts from other places. So the notion of who was going to grow food, where was food going to come from, is, it, is that why the Women's Land Army in, in Britain is a little bit more like Rosie the Riveter is here in the U.S.? Absolutely. You know, one of the things I find most interesting is that the United States, they had somewhere between five to six times the amount of membership in the Women's Land Army than Great Britain did. But yet the people in Great Britain, they celebrate the land girl, as they call her. They celebrate her like we celebrate Rosie the Riveter. I mean, they hail her as the woman who saved England in, in its time of need. And, you know, you see you know, examples of her all over the place in popular culture and film. There are you know, even Wedgwood and Waterford. They have created things, images of the, the land girl. But yet we seem to have wiped that out of our entire cultural memory. And instead, we tend to focus on the victory garden and that domestic aspect of women producing food at home. And while that was significant, because people at home produced about 40% of their vegetable supply, the nation's vegetable supply, that, that's really impressive. We also need to pay attention to the fact that we had this large amount of women who were taking this professional role as farmers. And to me, you know, these oral histories, these are absolutely priceless because they just give us a better understanding of the home front. And, and so I'm just so happy to have this opportunity to be here with Alice and Elaine today. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of theories that I have about why the United States uh, places this emphasis. Some of it's on that, that culture of abundance and as exporters. And just really also on this idea that uh, they wanted to encourage women after the war was over to give their jobs back to men. As a matter of fact, the Office of War Information and in other groups, they even created propaganda films to play in the factories and other areas that encouraged women. When the war was over, they were to give that job up because it belonged to a soldier. And so I think some of our history tends to go along that same theoretical line of promoting women's place in the home. And unfortunately, we've forgotten this wonderful history of the service of these women. Well, we're glad to be reviving that history today. We're going to take a break. We thank Cecilia so much uh, for joining us for this segment. We have our two veterans here in the studio, but thanks, and plus Walt Woodward, of course. Well, thanks to Cecilia Gowdy-Wigand. Uh, her book is Cultivating Victory, the Women's Land Army and the Victory Garden Movement. We'll be back after this break. From California.
Welcome back. We're uh, telling as much as we uh, much as we can of this incredible story of the Women's Land Army, uh, women who um, left what they were doing, young women who left what they were doing, uh, and uh, went into the fields to keep up America's food supply and maybe make food available to the rest of the world as well during both world wars, one and two. In studio, Walter Woodward. He is the Connecticut State historian, and then two veterans uh, of the Connecticut version of the Women's Land Army, Alice Corker and Elaine Lowengard. So um, I'm going to start with you, uh, two veterans. Um, one thing we haven't done is kind of just describe what the work was like. So Alice, for you, it was up in the morning at 530. Uh, and, and then what happened? You were on the farm by 6 a.m.? Well, I think perhaps it might have been a little bit later, but it, the trucks <laughs> were there at 6. And by the time the girls got in the trucks to have to be taken to the variety of farms that uh, were where the uh, strawberry patches were. And uh, we began our, uh, we began having to find ourselves in the, you know, designated path or the rows that you were to pick because if the strawberries were ripe, well, then you could pick them. And we all went early in the morning when it was rather chilly. We had uh, uh, clothing that was sort of <laughs> warm and dungarees. And those uh, black and white or red and white bowl check flannel shirts. And by the noontime, when it was about time or 11 or so, when we had to stop picking because the sun was coming up and the produce had to go to the market or the strawberries would get soft, uh, we were already wearing shorts and uh, or had our shorts on and had halters and the clothes were down the rows. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the first time that I ever saw blue jeans. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, it was something new, and that yeah. was the first time that I ever wore blue denim. Right, and it was wonderful to have them <laughs> for your knees because you were on your knees picking berries, and uh, they did get rather sore, and uh, the uh, so by the time it got to be rather hot, you wanted to be wearing shorts. And so, Elaine, that was the summer. By the fall, you were in the potato fields at Warehouse Point, right? Yes. Um, uh, I was recruited um, as part of my um, class at, at Chafee School. And I guess we were successful enough. I didn't eat too many strawberries, mm. so I was mm. invited back, I guess, to pick potatoes. So, and we did that instead of having, and that was done through Chafee School, and it was an official part mm -hmm. of the school program because um, we had potato picking instead of gym in the fall. <laughs> so, Walt, there's a tremendous amount of logistical stuff that has to happen in order for something like this to happen, right? Ranging from, you know, camps and housing to, I mean, these are young girls. I yeah. assume they needed chaperones and stuff Absolutely. like that. Come close to your By mind. By the way, Elaine, we would call that service learning today when you <laughs> would go out yeah. and potato. Of course. I you don't know. know. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the, the, first of all, you had to get the farmers to agree to take on the girls, and that always wasn't an easy sell. Mm. So, also herself and her assistant, uh, I think her name was Elaine Goodwin, would go out and talk to the farmers and recruit them. Once they agreed, they then had to find a place to house the girls. And it often was 
like a, a small, relatively small inn that had closed for the duration of the war because gas rationing meant people wouldn't come. They'd reopen them. They had to furnish them for the girls. They had to find cooks. Chaperones were difficult. It, it proved to be an intractable problem till Alsop got the idea of going to the ministers, and she actually got preachers to preach from the pulpit for a responsible, mature person willing to look after all these girls, and, and they showed up. Um, the employment was time-sensitive. You had to have people who, you had to have girls who could be in Bolton in June, you know, when the strawberries were ripe, and then able to wait till maybe October to be in Litchfield to pick the apples. A lot of this was was time-sensitive field work. <laughs> so that made employment an issue for some people. Um, the, the housing issues, paying, you had to pay all the girls. They got, now, what the papers say is that the average pay was 35 cents an hour. But I think in some cases, you actually got paid by what you picked, right? Seven cents a basket. <laughs> and uh, hopefully you made your $7 out of the week that you picked the berries to pay your Right. The girls had board. to pay board right. from the money that uh -huh. they earned. By the way, there is a small, small newspaper article in the Hartford Current in 1943 that tells exactly how many strawberries you all picked that year. <laughs> they were amazed. You picked 52,000 quarts of strawberries. Wow. And they said if it wasn't for the girls going out there, they would have rotted in the fields. That's it. So the other thing that's happening, I think, while this is, uh, while you're doing this for both of you is kind of an experiment in democratization. And Alice, I'll start with you. But, you know, first of all, a 13-year-old girl in West Hartford at that time didn't have television, didn't have a smartphone, didn't have a laptop, uh, didn't have a lot, didn't watch CNN, uh, didn't have a lot of things that maybe kind of connected you to the rest of the world. You probably you're more likely to know the people around you. Um, and I would imagine that doing this, doing this farm work, thrust you into a group of people who were much more of a mix from different backgrounds and places than what you had typically experienced. I would agree with you, and I think that's why I enjoyed. It wasn't just the fun. I enjoyed being part of the Women's Land Army because as I reflect back, um, I was introduced to, um, and Elaine did go to private school, Chafee, and uh, I mixed with girls I'd never known. There was a private school. I'd went to public school. But all of those things, even at the time that I was there, it was just being with people and learning and just being part of, of a new experience. But it wasn't until as time went on through the years, the value was more enlightening to my understanding of the different kinds of people, the backgrounds, schools, et cetera, et cetera. And just the experience of uh, coming together like that just became more rewarding to me in light of the fact picking strawberries for me was fun. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed it, but most of all, just getting to know other people and talking with them and sharing and so forth. And perhaps the experiences that we had, like entering into going doing the, the hitchhiking to get to town, <laughs> but 
also having to find years later in our culture today, oh my goodness, to do that just would not be apropos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would just be a, a worrisome thing for parents. Well, Aline, things so, have changed. Yes, Aline, some of that was gas rationing, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. I was thinking that I really didn't have a chance uh, to get to know um, the families of mm-hmm. the kids I went to school with mm-hmm. because. We didn't have the ability to get to to drive. I mean, we didn't uh, have the opportunity to go to other parts of the community. Mm-hmm. But we just stayed in our neighborhoods. But that meant, once again, this is not something that we would let our daughters do subsequently. But hitchhiking didn't seem it made a certain amount of sense, right? Somebody has a car. You know, oh, you get sure. in that car, yeah. Oh, sure. It wasn't thought to be dangerous or <laughs> anything true like that. All right. They have more stories yeah. to tell. Walt has more historical context to put into this. Why don't we grab a break right now? We're talking about the Women's Land Army. Soon to be a major motion picture. We just have to get the financing and the actors and the director and the studio and the distribution and all that stuff. But I'm sure Anne Hathaway will be very interested in this project. All right. We'll be back after this. Be careful what you planted. I'll be sure make sure we plant soul food Or else your soul is gonna be starving The music well is farming Higher meditation All right. I have no Kyone Wolf this week to do the credits, so I'll do them myself. This show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who, as usual, did an incredibly thorough job of finding people, including people like Elaine, who never even talked about this before. Um, And uh, Jonathan McNichol, uh, another producer, is on the board uh, doing some of the things that Kyone Wolf usually does. Um, And uh, also, I should tell you that tomorrow uh, we're bringing the nose, our cultural roundtable, down to New Haven. Uh, One of the things we're going to be talking about, it doesn't seem like this would be that big a topic unless you're aware of the furor around it. Pepsi uh, debuted a commercial this week, which uh, um, I won't even begin to try to describe it. But anyway, it's the commercial that shook America this week. That will be one of many topics that we talk about on the nose from New Haven. We've got a great uh, roundtable Uh, to do that. But right now, we're talking about the Women's Land Army. We're doing that with uh, two veterans of the Women's Land Army. Once again, the Women's Land Army, something that um, uh, people don't know about. It was uh, young women uh, by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, uh, who volunteered, who showed up, uh, who worked in the fields, who kept America and Britain's food supplies going during World War I and World War II. Elaine Lowengard and Alice Corcoran are in studio here. They were part of that effort. Walter Woodward, our state historian, uh, is here as well. So, Walt, very quickly, the story that they're telling about kind of a a democratization, an experience that put them in contact with a whole bunch of people who weren't like them, that's sort of the story of World War II, right? I mean, everybody wound up doing stuff with people that they didn't have contact with. Indeed. You know, most of the World War II uh, black and white army films that you see after that are kind of focused on this people of different classes and backgrounds and ethnicities coming together uh, to meet. The the kind of driving force in Connecticut was that this was largely, though, a middle-class controlled thing or upper-middle-class. The Alsops were people who fully expected that you would do your service during the war and then you would do the right thing and go back and become, you know, a, a 
wonderful mother of children in a you know very nice house in West Hartford and serve your community through volunteer work. It was a it was a uh, an important part of American culture at the time. I think for I think for people who participated in it, though, it opened up windows to experience that would have real ramifications later in their lives. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about that moment. And so, Elaine, I think another thing that's hard to understand in the same way that I was saying to Alice, no CNN, you know, no laptops, no smartphones. You know, you had a brother at West Point, but I mean, living in Connecticut during World War II, the war maybe wasn't quite in your face quite the way wars subsequently have been. I mean, how much did you know about what was going on in the war theaters at that time? Well, I did have a brother at West Point who was on his way to becoming an officer. Mm. Um, But uh, we were very aware mm-hmm. that there was a war there was there, there, because there were limits on everything you had ra- uh, race, ration books and uh, limited gas and uh, uh, we took I was the war was um, World War II was still on when I started to go to Chafee and we there were no private cars that were able to go out from our, West Hartford to Windsor so we all went on the public buses uh, to, to school, and that was uh, the result of not having enough gas to uh, have, never mind our kids having the car, families having the gas, or families having enough gas so you could carpool to go. They were definitely, you were aware of the limits. Uh, and there was plenty of propaganda in the movies that we saw, I mean, I remember being, you know, taught to dislike or even hate the Japanese and the Germans, that it was very hard for us to separate Nazis and Germans in our heads. And uh, there was a lot of propaganda that affected us in our attitudes toward the war. Um, so. Alice, this is also for you a, a very immersive experience in the sense that you wound up out in cabins that they'd built out in Andover, right, for women's land army people. Mm-hmm. Do, you think, do you think you're a different person as a result of doing this? Did this change your life? It only changed it to become more aware of other people and circumstances that were not like my own, mm-hmm. which, again, I'm very grateful for because it caused me to have some understanding of people in all different backgrounds of ethnic groups, etc., rather than to see, and that, like Elaine was saying, that uh, there was this kind of to hate um, Germans or to hate different people, etc., and it was so contrary when I met people personally to know them. I could not find those kinds of things to think that people, and I'm grateful for it because it began at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you both continued to grow food? Do you garden? Do you have a vegetable garden? No, no. not I'm not a talented gardener. <laughs> Sorry, it did not have a lasting. You just effect. did it for the for the nation. I you just did. you did I it for did. patriotism. How about you, Alice? No, did my you... parents had a garden. Mother was one who loved to be in the garden early in the morning till the end of day. I did not like it because if the truth were known, 
I didn't like to get my hands in the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't, but I understand that. And it's all right. I just appreciate the fact that they had... They had a love for gardening that just wasn't what I was called to do. So I'll just leave it at that and uh, enjoy the food. But I I also want to say that it's made me more aware of when I hear and see little um, things on TV about how farms are lacking and where food is necessary and all of the different things that are changing the culture or the farms for producing food um, makes it hard for what are the farmers going to do. And there are not many farmers, people that are becoming farmers or liking farming, et cetera. Um, so it, uh, you know, I, I, we're, gonna, we're about to run out of time. And, and Walt, I do want to kind of end where I began, which is that, I, you know, the, to me, these stories are amazing. And to not know, as an, I'm, I'm a 62-year-old American, I'd never heard of the Women's Land Army. That's either because I'm... I'm not paying attention or because the story doesn't get told. Um, and and I, as I say, I feel that way about the story about the women, women who worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I didn't know about them. I didn't know that there had been a whole group of women who were basically trained as if they were going to be astronauts too. Um, and it's – I don't know. It, it does say something about how history is written and understood, I well, think. It, you know? it is interesting that after the war – agriculture took the factory track. It Mm. actually became agribusiness and the small farms that the land army workers worked on shrunk down to almost nothing. Well, now they're coming back Mm. and maybe it's just the right moment. You know, maybe this is this is the perfect moment for that story of the people who went out to those small and medium sized farms and did the war work of men at a time when it was needed, is maybe it's its right time to come back and be told. So yeah. maybe next year there will be a movie. Well, we've got to start working on this. I mean, this is our big chance. Anne Hathaway, if you're listening right now, give me a call. I really feel you'd be great. Um, as we'll have I, probably Jennifer Lawrence playing uh, Elaine Lewengard and Anne Hathaway playing Alice Corcoran. Uh, I think that's ideal casting. <laughs> um, and uh, thanks very much to everybody who listened today. Yeah, I think it was Will uh, Durant who said that history is often written as a river of armies and blood, uh, and we don't write about the things that happen on the banks of that river. Uh, these are some stories that happen on the banks of that river. They are no less important for that. So I'm very, very glad that we were able to tell them today. Thanks again to Betsy Kaplan for putting together this show, and thanks so much to everybody who participated. Cecilia Gowdy Wagand, who wrote the book about it, uh, Cultivating Victory, the Women's Land Army, and the Victory Garden Movement. In the studio with me, Elaine Lowengard and Alice Corcoran. They picked uh, berries and beans and potatoes so America could, could eat during World War II. Walter Woodward is our state historian. We wouldn't dream of trying this without him. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>